Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm your host, John Hare, and you've found the place where we talk horses. So we're talking to Dan Dolphin, a horseman from Lafayette, Louisiana. Good morning, Dan. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, John. How are you? I'm doing great. Dan, give us a little bit of background about your experiences with horses. I understand that you got a pretty wild horse when you were just a young kid. Yes, sir. I, I was uh, not a kid that was raised on a ranch or anything, but I had the horse bug pretty badly. And so when I was 16, I took some money that I had earned and I went out and bought my first horse. My parents didn't know anything about it. And he wound up being kind of an outlaw. He would flip over backwards on a regular basis. So I had to figure out a way to fix him or my dad was probably going to shoot him. And that's pretty much <laughs> where horse training began for me. <laughs> And how did you learn how to fix him? Well, the first problem that I tackled with him was about him being really difficult to catch. Basically, I chased him around the pasture and left his stall open with a little grain in there until I kind of had him herded in. And I did that repetitiously one afternoon for about three hours. And he learned to go to his stall from literally from that day forward when my truck pulled up in the driveway at the barn, he headed for his stall and he was never hard to catch again. It took me years to work the flipping over portion of things out of him. And and that was really after I had gone to college and got a job with a professional trainer and and really started learning some things. So I can't really take credit for fixing that, but I did learn how to get out of the way pretty efficiently. So (laughs) uh, youth and reflexes are are gifts. (laughs) When you worked for the trainer, what type of work were you doing then? Uh, that was Mark Cooey, uh, and he was a cutting horse trainer. I wasn't really initially involved in the cutting side of his business. I had I had started a colt for another man that he had sent to Mark, and Mark liked what I had done with it. So for about four years, I started all of Mark's colts. And he had a just a breaking side to his business, too, and problem horses and then kind of the cutting side. So I was just dealing with the problem horses and the colts. And I would generally have them for about the first two or three weeks until they were quote unquote safe. And uh, then he would take them and put a handle on them and that sort of stuff. But he ran a whole bunch of horses under me and that really helped me quite a bit. And he was a pretty hands-off sort of a mentor. So I I could always go to him and ask questions, but he would kind of let me sit there and figure things out and, he didn't mind watching me struggle in the mud hole for a little while there, which is a gift sometimes when people try to micromanage you. Sometimes you wind up getting more confused and frustrated than if they just let you fight the fight. Right, right. I'm I'm struggling with to, to figure out, you know, you were trying to start these horses in, a, in two or three weeks. How far would you get on them? I mean, how, what would you do? What would you be able to do? It would depend on the horse, and I was a, a pretty ambitious sort of a guy, so I really did get where I could put a lot of handle on a horse in, in a couple of weeks' time. But generally, we would do about three or four rides in the round pin and kind of get them where you know, we could mount them without bucking, and we could travel around at a walk, a trot, and a lope, and turn left and right and stop. And So normally, before I leave the round pin in three or four days, I would have them where I could trot a figure eight, I could trot a circle that was smaller than the round pin, which is a pretty key milestone in a horse's progression. And then we could stop and take a few steps back. 
after that, normally I'd do about a, a ride or two in the arena. And then we had 160 acres of woods around there and what they call cutover, which is what's left after they harvest timber. So it's just all the branches and piles of wood. And it's really rough territory, which is a fantastic place to take a colt because they can't rush. It's really about picking their feet up and being careful and stuff. And it's almost like English horses and ground poles. You can, you can do that at a walk or a trot for 15 minutes. And that horse is like you loped him for 30, (laughs) you know, it'll, it'll wear them out and we could really get their mind right. There were a couple of covey of quail on that place too, so they were skittish. I knew where to take them, and by the time we were done with two or three weeks of that stuff, they were they were pretty much ready to see the world. Right. In the process of doing the podcast over the last eight or nine years, I've talked to a lot of different trainers, and I, I always feel like as a recreational horseman myself, it's a little difficult to build your horsemanship because... I'm working with such a limited pool of horses. I mean, I've had my wife's horse, a couple of horses of my own. So the pool is like six horses. I know six horses' personality that I've ridden and tried to work with. But you've gone through hundreds of horses. So you learn about different personalities. You can try one thing might not work on one horse that works on another horse. What do you see as kind of the biggest struggle for people like myself who are uh, recreational horsemen? I would say probably the most common issue that I see isn't so much with the personality differences. It's more with boredom. Like, for instance, the example that came to mind is if I were wanting to learn to be a good husband, probably the way to go about that isn't to have a harem of women. It's maybe just learn all about my wife and how to be the best husband for her. So I would liken the relationship with your horse like that. It really doesn't matter if you get along with a dramatically different temperament of horse. It matters if you get along with your horse. The real problem that I see that most of the amateur or novice horsemen have is that they don't take the basic things far enough, and then they try to advance, and they wind up with those infamous holes in the foundation. We're trying to do lead changes, but we don't have lead departures solidified and things like that and i think it's more they get bored and they're ready to move on and see some progress and they they tend to want to do that before they really should do that we're trying to write war and peace and we haven't really learned the alphabet yet exactly yes sir well Um, you know i ran across your youtube channel and it's a pretty good channel you've got a lot of great information on there by the way One of my challenges has been I've been riding my horses in a snaffle bit their entire lives. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is I've always felt like I didn't have the riding ability, the handwork to be able to handle a bridle bit. And then the second reason was the more horsemen you talk to, the more different advice you get about bits, transition bits, what works, what doesn't work. And you've kind of put together this this educational material about bits, what they do and what they work on. I've really found this fascinating. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience with bits? Sure. One thing I'll start out saying is that I, I come to that from more the mechanical 
side of things. So when I went to college, I actually started in engineering, uh, and I did that for a couple of years. So I, I do have a fairly strong background in physics and mechanics and that type of thing. And just as you said, I, I noticed there was a lot of inconsistency in the way that people would describe bits as working. And then I would take my analytical, logical mind, and I would look at things and break them down and, and realize that most of the information out there is basically wives' tales type stuff. It, it's myths and mystery, but there isn't really any logical foundation behind it. And so I kind of went into breaking the bits down into how they actually mechanically function. You overlay that with the anatomy of the horse, and there really is a pretty clear roadmap from that point forward. One of the things that I'm pretty passionate about is I think it's really important to understand the tool that you have, but at the same time, it's an inanimate object, and it is up to the animator to cause it to work correctly. So one of the things, examples that I use a lot of times is juggling. If you were to try to learn to juggle and you were starting off with baseballs and you got frustrated and it wasn't working well, it would be an absurd notion to think that switching to tennis balls was going to be the solution mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you'd be able to juggle. But that's exactly what people tend to do with bits. They, they kind of fail their way through them randomly rather than working their way through them and graduating the horse with success to the next level. And so that's really kind of what we're trying to do is just establish a roadmap. And it's not really discipline specific. We're all riding horses. We try to kind of outline it where, you know, if, if this is your particular set of goals, then it makes sense to walk down this road in that direction. But if this is your, this other set of goals is what you're after, then this road makes a little more sense. But, you know, it all is logically laid out and backed by science and the mechanics of the way the bits actually work. One of the things that I liked about the, the video series that you did, and this is like a, a five and a half hour series that you have available on your website, is that you got equine dentists, veterinarians, neurologists, and that you talked to, and you talked about the science of bits, the history of bits, and you made it pretty interesting. And I'm I was guilty of this, particularly when I was new to horsemanship. You know, you stick a bit in the horse's mouth, and even though I was using a snaffle, I felt, well, you know, I can't really do too much. That's why I use a snaffle. I can't do too much damage with a snaffle. But there's just so much more to it. it you put it in the mouth, and then you just figure uh, this is going to work, and then if it doesn't work, you you probably go to a more, well, quote-unquote, severe bit to, to try and see what's happening and see if that works. And then you might end up chasing your tail, going from bit to bit, trying to figure out what what's going to work for your horse. And that's that's not the best approach to do. Trial and error using bits doesn't seem to be, it seems to be an expensive proposition for one thing. Yes, sir. Well, I actually, when I get people in that want to learn to ride that haven't ridden very much, I always do the first three or four lessons bridleless in my round pen. And we kind of work on them developing an independent seat and learning how to ride with their body because the kind of the number one sin involved with bits is that people tend to learn to balance on their hands with the reins a little bit. And that right. really destroys communication. 
like I was just saying with a Colt, if, if I can put someone in a round pin and in three lessons, they can try to figure eight and stop the horse and back him up and, and they feel like they have control of rave and they're secure and they're safe. They won't ever develop the bad habit of balancing on their hands. And then their hands are actually available for communication. We talk a lot about signal in that video. And, and by the way, just so that, that we're clear, I do have a, a series of videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. The video, more than a bit of information, is is a both available as a DVD and a digital download. We kind of took that that YouTube series and we amped it way up, and that's a package that we have for sale on our website. So just so that we're clear on that, one of the things we talk a lot about is white noise, and that's basically just like the background noise in the real world that you get used to and you learn to tune out and people tend to use their hands in ways that create a lot of white noise which the horse learns to tune out and then we wonder why they're dull and insensitive and so really learning to recognize that the independent seat is important and how to use your hands and how all of that signal plays out and by the way all bits have signal uh, we do discuss in the video everything from double bridles and dressage to snaffles to spade bits. And the, the spade bit guys out there where you're from, they're they're infamous for referring to their spade as a signal bit. Well, all bits, including the smallest, the little easiest going single jointed ring snaffle is still a signal bit. Uh, as we outlined in the video, there's seven or eight things that happen in what we call the action chain before that bit makes full contact with the horse's mouth. So recognizing that action chain and giving it time to play out is a significant milestone for a rider to get a horse to become light and kind of recognizing how much stuff is really going on. And if you don't recognize that, then you're not really tuned in enough to be able to take advantage of the different nuances throughout the bits anyway kind of until your riding skill gets to a certain point, there's not a whole lot of point in trying nine different bits because you're still learning to juggle. You're, you're going to drop the ball, whether it's a baseball or a tennis ball, so to speak. So. Do you think that most people should be riding in a snaffle bit? I think it's a good place to start. I think one of the, one of the key things about snaffles, and, and I guess I'm going to say specifically a single-jointed snaffle, it is a bit that is really meant to be ridden one rein at a time. And that's where people really need to learn. They kind of need to learn to master the left side and then master the right side. And then when we step up to bridal bits, we're kind of bringing that all together. One of the places where that'll get more complex is if we're riding in contact. But as I explained in the video at length, contact is actually a pretty high level skill. I don't think any novice, regardless of what discipline they're trying to learn, should be attempting to ride in contact in the beginning. That, that's something that really takes some time and some feel in order to learn it correctly and not develop the bad habits that you're going to have to break somewhere down the road, if you ever recognize that they're bad habits in the first place. Right. I've talked to some trainers who have said that they'll ride their horse in a snaffle one day and maybe a hackmore and then maybe put the the bridle bit in. Do you recommend changing it up for your horse to keep that variety, I guess? 
does that help a horse? I'm honestly not a big fan of that. I kind of think of, of bits as pretty intimate objects, particularly that line of communication with the horse. And so I'm generally trying to get a horse as familiar and comfortable with whichever particular bit we're in for that moment. So in other words, I, I would be more proud of myself, for lack of a better way of saying it, if I were to take a horse from beginning to whatever we're considering end with three different bits rather than nine. In my mind, right. the more I have to search and kind of be looking around, that's that's probably indications that I was missing things and having to try to cover up those holes that I had created. So I prefer to keep things pretty simple. And when I transition to different bits, a lot of times we may not have a good initial experience, like particularly going from a snaffle to any type of curb bit or transition bit. A lot of times it's going to feel like the horse takes some steps back when that happens. I feel like it's pretty important to, to kind of stay the course and, and maybe say, I'm going to, I'm going to absolutely spend 10 days in this bit, no matter how ugly it gets and try to work right. my way through it and get the horse acclimated to it. A lot of times the initial reaction melts away and, and we're in good territory before too long. I think people kind of abandon and jump ship a little more quickly than they should, or they're pushing the horse to levels of performance that are too high for his level of comfort with what's going on. And that's common regardless of bits. I, just to get off of bits, I had a guy that came to me that wanted to learn to ride bridleless, which is something I do a lot in my demonstration. And so, you know, we got into the stage where we pulled the bridle off. And I mean, quick as can be, this guy turns away from me, kicks his horse off into a loop. And the first maneuver he asks for bridleless is a rollback. You know, like, <laughs> how about we try to circle before we go to something like a rollback? You know, how about we just back up and make sure the horse is with us before we just jump way out there like that? You know, so there should always oh, be a goodness. logical progression that occurs and i think a lot of times people miss that which is you know it's okay that's what experience is about but hopefully once right. the progression is explained to you then it makes sense and and then you can honor it i'm sorry i'm giving you shameless plugs for this bid video but i'm about halfway through and one of the things you talk about is the fit of the bit and yeah i was probably had my my snaffle bit a little bit too tight. So yesterday I was out riding and I adjusted it according to the my understanding of the way you explained it in the video. And it was a good five or 10 minutes that my horses were going, hey, uh, what's this? Why am I wearing this like this now? And the important part is, is that the more we rode, I thought the horses appreciated the new place that they were carrying the bit. They felt like maybe they were a little bit more comfortable while I was riding and trying to signal them. So for that, I think it got me thinking about, well, how many people are using bits and then maybe not using them correctly just by the, the basic way that they fit them on the horse? Yes, sir. I, I see that very commonly. Two of the things that we're trying to promote in the area of comfort are the horse to pick the bit up and then form the mouth seal. 
kind of the most common way that you hear people talk about setting bits up is the, with the one wrinkle or the two wrinkles that actually sets up a case of textbook desensitization. So if we think about signal and then action chain, and I won't get into breaking that all down here, but the corners and lips of the horse's mouth are the, the first tissues to receive any kind of signal from the bit. And if, the head stall is too tight and we're making the horse smile a little bit. It is causing pressure in the corner of the horse's mouth constantly, which the horse then is going to be basically asked to tune out. That's that white noise situation. And so if we really want a horse to ride light, he needs to be comfortable with the bit and he needs to be able to form that mouth seal. When we drop the bit down a little bit, you, you really can look at their facial expressions and see them relax. They'll I actually want it a snaffle anyway, where it's hanging maybe a quarter of an inch below the corners of the horse's mouth when you put it in there. Now it won't stay there. They're going to, they're going to pick it up and suck on it and pull it back into the corner of the mouth themselves. And if you then pick up on a rein and you move the ring of that bit, you'll see how much looser that lip and, corner of the mouth tissue is and how much more subtle your signal through the bit can be and the horse will still respond to it also when right. we pick the bit up too high in the horse's mouth we we, we kind of break the mouth seal he can't really close his mouth anymore that's one of those things that that tends to lead to the foamy mouth and all of that kind of stuff which we go into great detail talking about all of the problems that that actually causes. That was when I was doing the video, I did about six months of research. And like you said, I, I did consult eight or nine different experts in various fields, but probably the majority of the experts all were experts on anatomy and dealing with the face, the neurology, the tongue, the lips, the corners of the mouth and that type of stuff. And that was really the biggest shock that I learned with the video. I, I never was a fan of seeing a foamy mouth in a horse, but you hear so many things about it being, you know, wet mouth is a good mouth. I really was taken aback by just how harmful that foamy mouth situation is and how many other negative physical effects it leads to tension throughout the pole and hyoid problems and all kinds of, you know, again, we outlined in the video, but a foamy mouth really should be a big red flag for all of us really should be right in some of my training exercises with with one of my horses i've i've gotten his mouth a little bit foamy and watching your explanation was kind of uh an eye-opener to actually what was going on i couldn't figure it out i just thought he was salivating too much yes yeah and now i know it was my fault and for what i was asking him to do was really making a mess of things because it was like whipping up that salivation so that uh, it would all foam up and then he couldn't swallow it and, and hopefully in the video we do give you some very memorable visual aids on that situation that you you will never be able to get out of your mind <laughs> uh, my <laughs> you wife did. was a little horrified at some of that but uh, i thought it got the point <laughs> across because there is so much dogma about that that's going to be a pretty hard deal to to get across to people but uh hopefully we we, we made our point <laughs> You kept it entertaining, Dan. You did. We'll cover a couple of other topics here, too, is that we were talking before we actually sat down on the interview about different things that folks do with their horses that we're training on and we might think they're good practices or 
trying to get our horses to listen to us better. And one of them was yielding hindquarters. And from what, from our conversation, you mentioned that you you think this might be a little bit of overdone. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yes, sir. I don't want to try to come across as I'm just trying to be controversial about everything. But, but again, I, I like to think critically and logically. Disengaging the hindquarters is a pretty important step when you're starting a colt. It's a good way to walk them off for the first time. It can help in if if they start to get where they want to buck. And but I kind of I really do view it as a kindergarten type of a step. Roughly speaking, if if we're using it simply to stop a horse from bucking, the reality is what a horse does when he bucks is he gets heavy on the front end and light in the hind end. You know, every Wyoming license plate. I mean, you get the horse coming down, he's jobbing his front end down into the ground, and the hind end is bucking and kicking up, and that's why it can kick up because it's not grounded. Right. So I really find if, if, if stopping a horse from bucking is what I'm trying to do, once I've got two or three rides on them and I can move the shoulder, that's actually a far more effective way because what a horse that wants to buck wants to do is lock his shoulder down. And if you can free the shoulder up, that's actually the way to loosen their back and relax them and get them out of that mindset. Another part of it that I'm not a fan of, like with the groundwork stuff, if you want to teach a horse to stop, let's say if we had a compass heading or something, you want him to stop. And when he stops, you want him still point in the same direction he was pointing. You don't want him to stop and then turn 90 degrees. And so if we're associating woe with stopping and turning 90 degrees, then we probably haven't actually associated that word with, with an outcome that we really do want. And mm-hmm. then lastly, uh, I'm actually writing an article on this right now, but uh, the article is entitled The Most Important Leg of Your Horse. And the answer to that is the outside hind. Just about every maneuver, really the, the spin is the one that is – that this doesn't fit with, but anything from a lead departure, a good circle that we might be trotting, a rollback, just about any maneuver in dressage involving collection, all of those things depend on the outside hind leg of the horse loading up and bearing weight. Disengaging of the hindquarters teaches them to do the exact opposite of that. We're, we're taking weight off of the outside hind and as soon as the outside hind bears weight again we're driving it away we're driving it away so again if we're talking kindergarten and and all i'm trying to do is get a horse to move up move his hip to the right when i press with my left foot that's that's good that's valuable if i do that ad nauseum to the degree that i habituate an action in my horse where he doesn't think he's supposed to load up weight on the outside hind then I'm going to have some significant problems to fix somewhere down the road. And I see this a lot. And part of the problem, like you had talked about earlier, novices not understanding what to do. They see a clinician do four exercises. And at home, that clinician might do those four exercises for a week, and then he progresses beyond them. But that's all they start right. to do at the clinic, and they go home and do that for nine months. And yeah. now we have we habituated something in that we didn't really want to habituate it was just a step in the process but we needed to graduate beyond it so that's kind of how i feel about it It, it's something that that has its place and its purpose but if you don't understand the place and the purpose you can 
you can overdo it and you can cause a horse to start. They feel like a car or a truck going too fast down a gravel road that starts fishtailing, gets really light in the hind end. That's what these horses that have been disengaged 8 billion times, that's what they feel like. They, They don't bite and lock down with that hindquarter the way we need them to for just about every advanced maneuver you can think of. Like I said, the spin is kind of the, the odd man out there because disengaging the hindquarters is a pretty important part of that. But it really is the only maneuver that that it applies to. It'll be harmful to just about everything else. Wow. Well, it's fascinating. This time of year, you know, it's it's 1st of February 2021. We're hoping that uh, this year gets a little bit better and, and we can get out to horse shows and clinics and expos and things like that. And I find that this time of year, when you may not be able to ride as often as you like, is a great way to learn more about your horsemanship, to try and build that part up. Because I think we kind of owe it to our horses. If we want to have a better horse, I think we have to be a better horseman. And you've got just a a whole array of different things. You've got your uh, YouTube channel where people can get and see you work with horses and learn your philosophy and your website. And then you've, you've got a lot of things that are helpful for people out there. If people want to find out more about Dan Dauphin, where shall we send them? Well, I guess the primary place would be the website and that is dauphinhorsemanship.com and it's D-A-U-P-H-I-N kind of like Dauphin Island in Alabama. We've got a Facebook page and a YouTube channel of the same name. And then we have a Facebook group called Bits, Spurs, and Good Sense. That's kind of where I do questions and answers and kind of have the most, I guess, back and forth with the public. And then on the website, we have a a subscriber side where we're we're riding colts here at the ranch and and we put up about two hours worth of video a week on there, and it's all raw and unedited, so you get the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then we also do some virtual coaching stuff where you can take a 20-minute clip of you riding and send it to me, and I'll send it back to you by the slow-mo and back up and circle, kind of like John Madden on the old football stuff. We have a program that allows me to circle it, draw lines and various things to kind of draw your attention to this and so forth. That's our social media and online presence. Excellent. Well, this has been great fun, Dan. I really have enjoyed some of the stuff that I've seen that you've produced. You're doing a great job. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to to come on to the show and share your knowledge with our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I hope hope we can help somebody out down the road, and I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. That will do it for another episode. Thanks to Dan Dolphin and Dolphin Horsemanship. If you're interested in improving your horsemanship, folks like Dan with his YouTube page, Facebook group, and general knowledge are an essential resource. His three-part, more than a bit of information series, available on his website, looks daunting at first. I always found bits to be one of those parts of horsemanship I would never fully comprehend. Dan certainly makes it easier. To see the show notes with links and photos, go to woepodcast.com. If you'd like to share a story or experience about your horse or suggest the guest, I'd love to hear it. Send an email to john at 
wopodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name wopodcast. I'd love to hear from you. As we enter our ninth year of the podcast, I want to say thanks for all the support. I've got a lot of great guests and new ideas in the works. I hope you'll stay along for the ride. I'm also working on improving my YouTube channel, John Heron Horses. Check it out. My goal is to share as much stuff about horses and horsemanship as I can. The more we know, the better it will be for all our horses. And that's what it's all about. Stay safe and healthy. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and riding buddies. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.